Cornucopia Radio presents Thanks to Harry Written by Phil Ryan I suppose it was inevitable, me ending up here in this police cell. You might say it was my destiny. You see, ever since I was small, I loved stories of heroes and magicians who escaped from impossible places. And now, here I am inside such a place. poster of Harry Houdini on my childhood bedroom door. It came everywhere with me once I left home. My college rooms, my first flat, and then, of course, my marital home, although Carol didn't like it, so it went up in the shed. I loved his face, so calm as he struggled to free himself from the handcuffs before the water in the tank claimed the last of his oxygen. That started my love of magic. Strictly amateur, of course. Father thought my studies were much more important. In a way, he was right, but I still joined a group and learnt the basics. I had a fair little act, too. Nothing spectacular, but I liked it. Kids' parties and the odd Masonic do, mainly. Pocket money, but useful all the same. It got me through college and university, but retail business studies and magic don't really make good bedfellows and... I just couldn't put the time into it, you see. Magic, I mean, not business studies. Oh, no, I got my degree. Pretty fair one, too. Although father wasn't impressed. Mind you, he never was. What was it he was always saying? There's more to life than silk hankies and fancy parlour tricks. Get yourself a trade. Forget these children's games. It's time to face up to your responsibilities. Life ain't about fun, you know. It was at my wedding... And he'd just made some joke about the fact that none of my tricks could help me escape from this ring of gold. Quite touching, really, but there was that look to him as he added that last little dig. Funnily enough, he bought me my first box of magic tricks on my seventh birthday, but I don't suppose he remembered that. But I stayed in the magic club. Nothing would stop me leaving that. My little oddity, Carol called it. She resented it for some reason. My Tuesday night's out, but I didn't care what else she did. I wasn't going to lose it. It was my escape through all those years, my little secret escape time. When the children came, she tried her very best to stop me going, but I wouldn't budge, and eventually she just gave up. Mr Standish was the chairman of the club then. He took over from Marvo when he passed. Lovely chap. When he became the chair, he'd just retired. He was an old pro, really, although his fingers weren't up to much by this time. To be fair, though, even though he was 70, he could still do the five joined rings and the watch in a velvet bag with the best of them. We met each week up the pub. 
The others were a pretty mixed bunch. Roy from the local bank. Des from the window firm up on the high road. The brothers Bill and Steve, who ran a small building firm. And, of course, Sharita. It wasn't a real name, everybody knew that. But she was our little star. She was kept under Mr Standish's wing. He was a bit of a father figure to her in his own way. He'd even taken her to a magic circle meeting as his guest, and she was just so keen. He once told me he'd called round one afternoon, and she was on her fiftieth attempt at a cage escape. He said he'd seen her through the kitchen window. She'd been in there for three hours, but she wouldn't let him help her. That lot wasn't going to beat her. Sharita, all of us loved her. No, no, we did. She was like a breath of fresh air. She didn't want any of us, not, not in that way. We were her brother magicians, she said, and she didn't want anything to spoil the group. And in a way, I'm glad she felt that way because it made it better somehow. All of us feeling it, but none of us standing a chance. A kind of uniting force. Carol didn't like her. Honestly, the way she dresses, mutton dressed as mutton, that's what I call her type. No breeding, you can always tell. But I didn't care. It wasn't about Carol, it was about us. The group, I mean. It was my thing. We all had our specialities. Roy was mad on sleight of hand. Bill and Steve liked making things disappear, although their real love was the making of magic tricks. They really were ingenious, and the quality of their work was unbelievable. Des loved his bird illusions, but me and Sharita, despite our liking for general illusions, were caught up with the noble art of escapology. She once gave me an engraved lockpick on my birthday. I gave her some nickel handcuffs on hers. Oh, there was nothing in it. It was just friends. She knew I was married, and I'd heard a rumour of a boyfriend. Anyway, she was at least fifteen years younger than me. But we did get on well. It was the magic, you see, common ground and all that. Mr Standish really encouraged both of us. He was such a kind man. He'd been on the road for forty years before his prostate problem kicked in, and I'll never forget one afternoon flicking through his photo album with him. There he was, the great Zalak, gypsy conjurer to the Tsar. He was of Polish or German extraction, I think, but he had such a wonderful accent, he could have been Russian. I have two protégés. I believe that there is no luck can hold the pair of you. I'm so proud. But you never rest on your laurels. No, you must practice and practice, my friends. Now please, pick a card. And then it happened. The takeover. I was a senior manager at Whitlake's department store. You know, the big one at the bottom of Regent Street. Well, it's not there now, of course. Our group got caught up in some kind of hostile buyout and I was found to be surplus to requirements and off I had to jolly well go. Carol blamed me, said I didn't fight my corner. She never really understood what I did. Things didn't look good. 
I'm in my 50s, you see, and not, as the woman in personnel put it, as commercially hot as I could be. And that was the start of it, I suppose. Carol didn't work. She was never what you'd call a well woman, and what with her mother to look after, she really didn't have the time. Well, I suppose we'll just have to tighten our belts. To think you've brought us to this. Mother was right about you. She kept going on about watching our pennies, but we weren't that badly off. She had quite a bit of money from her late father, and there were my savings and, eventually, my small pension. But she wanted me to be useful, she said, so I had to soldier on. I'm not a snob, really I'm not, but I suppose, after all those years at Whitlake's, I'd become used to a certain kind of environment. It was the top people's store, after all, and, well, to be frank, I couldn't see myself in one of the company's more down-market stores. It was the kind of people you had to deal with, and right then, I suppose, I was the old dog you couldn't teach new tricks to. I'm not bitter, please don't get me wrong. Life has been good after a fashion. The children don't visit as much as I'd like, and... Carol and I are not quite how I'd hoped we'd be, but on the whole, things haven't been too bad. Not so shabby, as my brother used to say. I've learnt to accept what I have. Things could have been worse. Most times after the group, we'd pop over to the butcher's arms near the new bypass and chat for an hour or two. It was good to talk. Everyone was so like-minded. Of course, it was mostly about magic or new shows we'd heard about and such, but occasionally we'd talk about things in general. It was comforting. They were like family, really. Poor Roy had an elderly mother to look after, which was quite a strain, and Bill and Steve always struggled to make a living. As for Des, well, he was never a healthy man, but he had quite a large family to support. We, we needed the group. It was where the real world ended and magic began. Even when I lost my job, I still went. Of course, Carol kicked up a fuss about my weekly subs money, but she left it alone eventually. Funny old thing, marriage. Then the job with Bendish and Sons came up. The woman in personnel said I was very lucky to get it and put it down to my long service to the old company. They were bought a year or two earlier and were now part of the new company group. It's an ideal post for you, especially considering your age. So my advice is just keep your head down and say nothing. I know it's not quite what you're used to, but I really don't think you're going to get a better offer. I was more than a little disappointed at only being offered the senior assistant manager's post. But beggars can't be choosers, as they say, and things started off well. Of course, the manager was a lot younger than I was, but I didn't really mind about that. It was his style I questioned. See, Bendishers has a long history in the trade, and I couldn't help but notice the sort of people he thought were right for the store. Expensive items can often forget to take taste into account and only serve to attract a certain type of customer. I didn't say anything. 
but I think he sensed my disapproval. And before long, he simply left me to my own devices, which suited me. In my old job, I was central to running several departments, and now I found myself with just a small one, and so much time on my hands I didn't quite know what to do with myself. One afternoon, just to amuse the two young girls on gift wrapping, I performed some very basic tricks using coloured handkerchiefs. There was nobody in the store. In fact, it was a foul afternoon, the rain lashing the windows in New Bond Street, effectively keeping everyone's customers away. The manager must have heard their laughter, and he came over to me. Very droll, I'm sure. But I think your time could perhaps be better spent doing something a little more constructive, don't you? And then he added that at my age I should feel grateful that the company had been thoughtful enough to give me such a position. I like to think I'm a tolerant person, but the more I sat and thought about things, it suddenly hit me. I'd been surrounded my whole life with people generally telling me to find something more useful to do or treating me as valueless. What I wanted and felt seemed a secondary consideration. It was quite a revelation. But there was more to come. And little did I know how much more. That night at the group... Sharita didn't arrive, and Mr. Standish gave her apologies, detailing some small family engagement, but something in his manner didn't ring true, and afterward, when I questioned him further, he took me to one side. In strictest confidence, he told me that, and he wrung his hands as he spoke, her non-appearance was in some part attributable to me. It turned out that Sharita had bumped into Carol in the high street the day before and politely inquired after my health. Carol's response had been most rude, going so far as to accuse her of being after me. Some more unpleasant accusations followed these, and Sharita had felt unable to attend the group, not wishing to exacerbate the situation any more. Mr Standish kindly promised that he would be the soul of discretion, and so it was that a private meeting was arranged for the following evening. All that day on the shop floor, my thoughts were filled with what I would say, my obvious distracted manner prompting another offensive comment from the manager. Thinking of another bit of a performance for the girls, are you? Well, I would appreciate it if you could instead focus on the main matter at hand if it wouldn't be too much trouble. I was getting a little tired of all of this. I had suggested the new wine bar near the Territorial Army Depot by the roundabout close to the garage. Sharita looked so unhappy. She even talked about not attending the group anymore. Well, you can imagine how that made me feel. And I told her that she was the group and just how much everyone cared for her. She started to cry. And I pulled a hanky out for her to use and, silly as it must sound, I couldn't resist making a rose appear. That was when she first kissed me. 
Oh, how we talked that evening. It was as if we'd both escaped from some great set of chains. <laughs> Sorry, I just realised that must sound odd, me describing two escapologists escaping in that way, but it was the truth. We had. It turned out that she'd loved me from the first moment that we met, but that circumstance hadn't been in our favour. She'd finally broken it off with her boyfriend months ago, and me, well, I think everyone knew about mine and Carol's arrangement. But she couldn't bring herself to interfere, she said. Marriage is a holy state, she said, and she wouldn't take another woman's husband. It was Mr Standish who told her how I felt about her, the wonderful old rogue. I could hide the cards from him, but I couldn't hide my heart. I told Sharita I would leave Carol and that we'd start a new life somewhere. And that was when it came to me. They say the best thoughts you ever have often come from out of nowhere, but these thoughts came from a place I never imagined was in me. The next day at the store, I must have been humming under my breath, a habit I only employ when I'm very happy. Of course, the manager noticed and commented, and without thinking, I gave the reason that I was delighted with a new line of products he'd just had delivered. His manner changed immediately, and so it was I began to slide small compliments to him whenever the opportunity presented itself. And of course, he just lapped it up. Sadly, I couldn't employ the same technique at home, and Carol's moods seemed to darken in inverse proportion to my burgeoning joy. But now I had my Sharita, a candle in whose light no darkness could prevail. Of course, we were discreet. At the group, we acted exactly as before, and life carried on as normal. And then Roy's mother died. It was a blessing, really, but Roy took it very badly, and both Bill and Steve began taking it in turns to sit with him most evenings. Oh, it's, uh, it's no bother, really. Is it, Steve? Nah, we were passing anyway, and we thought you might like to share our curry. Hey, you've got to see this new thing Bill can do. To tell you the truth, considering the state of their business, you'd have thought they could have spent their time more profitably, but they were such kind men. So many times they'd done little jobs for me refusing payment, so it should have come as no surprise to see their compassion to a fellow magician. Des helped out when he could, and Mr Standish carried on organising guest teachers once a month, and I noticed that we had more than usual from the sleight-of-hand side of things. He knew Roy's love of it, you see, and in his own way he tried to contribute to taking his mind off things. To thank him for getting Sharita and me together, I had one of his original posters blown up at the local print shop, and then I had a lovely pine frame added. He was overcome. Despite all my protestations, he insisted on giving me something in return, an old stage trick from his early act. It was so ingenious. It, it, it looked like a great big old-fashioned radio, but a hidden spring made it fall into three completely different shapes, so that one minute you were holding a great big wooden-looking radio, 
and the next you had what looked like a television set. And then, with a triumphant flourish, you were left holding a black magician's cape with a blood-red silk lining. <laughs> I couldn't hide my pleasure. I felt honoured to receive it. At work, things stayed pretty much the same, except, I suppose, in the manager's attitude toward me. My little compliments had had a dramatic effect, and he began to defer to me on purchasing stock and all manner of previously off-limits decisions. I continued my charm offensive and waited for an appropriate time before taking action. When I was five, I'd been given a small train set by a distant aunt one birthday. Upon opening the box, we discovered that the shop had accidentally included two Transformers. I carefully put that second Transformer in my cupboard, not having an immediate use for it right at that moment. Years passed and the Transformer sat there on the shelf until one Christmas, the new lights my father had purchased for the Christmas tree failed to work. Upon examination, he found it was a problem with voltage conversion. I'll never forget my triumphant entrance with my second transformer, nor the pleasure on my mother's face, as after a quick adjustment, my transformer lit the tree from top to toe. I can't explain it, but sometimes the right moment arrives, and you know it with such certainty it takes your breath away. It was the hot pot that partly decided it. Wednesday was hot pot night. Carol's cooking repertoire was limited, and across the years she'd fallen into a pattern of fixing meals to days. There was a kind of familiarity to it all, and to be honest, I've never been what you'd call a food person. But this particular night, I commented about it in what I thought was a rather light-hearted way. She didn't say a word, but I could sense she didn't like it. And over the next week, it was as if a door had finally closed. We've never been what you'd describe as close, but from that day onwards, what little connection we had effectively ended. I told Sharita, and she said she was sorry, but I suddenly didn't care anymore. Things were changing, and just one week later, it came to me. When I was 12, I once forgot to do my homework, and on the school bus that morning I sat with my eyes closed, thinking, what would Houdini have done in my situation? The poster hung on my bedroom door, and his face was clear in my mind. I had to find a way. His book said that within the capacities of the human brain, impossible actions are possible. They just need firm will and the application of technical solutions. Thus, what can look unbreakable or unbeatable can be broken and beaten. Mr Hudson, the maths teacher, was standing by the fountain in the courtyard and on my signal, my friend Thompson kicked the football straight at me. The ball hit me, causing me to hurtle into Mr Hudson as I fell forwards, I grabbed at his briefcase, preventing it falling into the water. 
whilst at the same time hurling my exercise book into the air, where it was whipped away in a torrent foaming from the fountain's centre. Well done, boy. That was very courageous of you. I really am most very grateful. So grateful was he, in fact, that I had saved his precious briefcase, that he dismissed my concerns about my exercise book and homework, going so far as to fetch me a brand new one himself from the school supply cupboard, thus saving me a few shillings. It was all down to Harry, the great Mr Houdini. I once told this story in the pub one evening, and Mr Standish had laughed and said that it was amazing the ways in which he could use magic, adding it was a shame that our group couldn't influence the lottery. Such an innocent comment at the time, but such are the seeds of ideas planted. I've always felt that there's something wonderful about handmade goods. I suppose they imbue the owner with a sense of importance at their ability to surround themselves with unique items created exclusively for them. At the old store, we offered a raft of these types of services ranging from clothing to luggage to jewellery and perfumes. Often, if you could collect enough regular purchases of such items, a department could more than double its turnover. This being very welcome news to managers with generous commission deals. I once even heard a story of one chap who bought a holiday home on the proceeds of commissions accrued through regularly supplying an Arab gentleman and his entire retinue with handmade luggage and towels. One afternoon, I took the opportunity to mention this fact to the manager, who, after initially feigning disinterest, then very unsubtly fished about for as much information as I had on the subject. He was clearly very excited at the prospect of pushing his commission up, due in part to his unfortunate obsession with what he termed the easy money to be had in purchasing and renting flats. I think he fancied himself a property tycoon, the way he described his holdings, although I knew them to be two very tiny studio flats above a laundrette off the Harrow Road. I left it about two days, before discreetly contacting old colleagues about how it might apply to our store. And once suitably armed, I approached the manager with the relevant information. He was with two of the general floor sales staff, so I took great pains to intimate that it was all the manager's idea, and of course he was only too happy to go along with it. It took me to one side, and completely disingenuously made me head of the project. I acted so gratefully and was so fulsome in my thanks that I genuinely believed at that point that he did indeed think it was all his idea. So as not to arouse his suspicion and because of initial financial controls, I slowly put together the people to make the goods, contacting various suppliers and so forth. The manager seemed to approve and after a little encouragement, the marketing department began to promote the service, albeit in a low-key way. Carol was still sticking to her way, and the group were gearing up for discussing the format for the show we did every year at the children's ward in the local hospital. Suppose you and your friends will waste a perfectly good day up at that hospital. Honestly, you'd think they'd all have something better to do. They really were a marvellous bunch. 
despite every single one of them having quite difficult lives, they still threw themselves wholeheartedly into the preparation, spending their own money on all manner of props and things to make the show a real delight for the children. Of course, being magicians, we took great delight on keeping our own performance details secret from each other. It was a little extra surprise we all looked forward to. So neither Bill or Steve questioned any of the props I asked them to make me. The rest I ordered through my catalogue and had them delivered to Sharita's house. Sharita was wonderful. She was so understanding. And her patience with me showed me just how much real love she felt for me. I had to tell her about my plan, though. But a tiny voice of doubt fluttered inside me fearful at what she might think of me. I didn't want to lose her, quite the opposite in fact, but these new thoughts, this scheme could reveal a side of me she never knew. Worst of all, a side of me she might not like. And then Mr Standish had his stroke, and a shadow seemed to fall over the group. I've never had to particularly deal with officialdom in its raw form, and thankfully, after his experience with his mother, it turned out that Roy was, in his own way, quite the expert. But the more he told me, the more I was appalled at the treatment meted out to poor Mr Standish. Being an entertainer of the old school, he'd never managed to save very much money, and that night at the pub, as Roy explained the options available to him, I felt ashamed to be British. A letter was produced, which Roy read to the whole group, and to say it was depressing was an understatement. The council will exercise its right of ownership against the aforementioned property to recoup the cost it will face in offering its basic care package to Mr Standish. After initial assessment, all goods and chattels must be disposed of in accordance with the regulations, as stated in subparagraph B, section 2J. The council were proposing to sell Mr Standish's small terraced house, dispose of his goods, and place him inside an old people's home over 60 miles away. There was a welter of regulations and rules pronouncing this to be official procedure, and a date some three weeks in the future for a meeting to decide upon what they termed appropriate action. Everyone was appalled. His home, his collection of props and illusions, his dignity. Roy was wonderful. He said we weren't going to let this happen, and he asked us all to think of ways in which we could help. To me... There was only one answer. And that night, as I thought about that circle of concerned faces, those kind people, I knew what else had to be done. My plan just got bigger. My old connections to the company, though tenuous, meant that officially I was still allowed to make use of the facilities at the company golf club. Although I must add, it was considered bad form to appear once your apparent usefulness to the company was over. In the heady days when I was a senior manager, I'd witnessed former directors being politely snubbed or ignored if they had the temerity to appear after losing their positions of influence. Very Victorian in a way, I suppose. Honour amongst people who clearly didn't possess a shred of it. But I needed to move things along, and the idea came to me over breakfast. 
Carol had barely spoken to me when on the radio some report about a disgraced government official receiving a favourable position in some European job prompted her to snort something about whispers going down the grapevine. Whispers. That was what was needed. I have to confess it was quite uncomfortable. But after accidentally bumping into various senior directors in the bar, I found that if the talk was kept strictly shop-based, they seemed to forget their petty notions of the right thing and protocol and seemed only too happy to hold forth on their own pet ideas about the company. By the time I had left, I was confident that they would rebrand my ideas as their own. And if my 40 years at the company has taught me one thing... It was this. If an idea makes you look like a man of sound business sense, then you better tell as many people as you can, because that's how promotions are earned. <laughs> it worked. And that concludes my presentation. Hopefully you can all see just how effective this scheme might be. And thank you all for your kind comments. It's nice to know one's ideas don't always go unappreciated. The manager called me into his office and without a trace of embarrassment informed me that his idea of promoting the bespoke side of things had reached head office, who had given him the go-ahead to step things up considerably. <laughs> I praised him for his insight and informed him that if he wanted, I would rapidly speed up the processes involved, leaving out the fact that I had in fact got everything already in place. And so it was just one month later that under my control the new department opened. Working over just two weekends, the shop fitters had created a tasteful but discreet lounge area in what was the old staff room. The manager was delighted at how I'd kept the costs down and reduced the disruption to the rest of the store. Well, I've always said it pays to use people you know and trust. You can always tell real craftsmanship. Clients could now sit in luxurious privacy and view items and discuss their desires with either the manager or myself. Then I received a call from Des, Bill and Steve who invited me to come to Mr Standish's house. Touchingly, as it turned out, to view their secret handiwork. After talking to Roy, they had decided that if the house was to be sold, then they wanted it to fetch the best price that could be got for it. Sharita came with me, and it was a marvel to see. It was beautiful. Des had put in new windows, and Bill and Steve had repaired and decorated every room. <laughs> we could see they were all dead on their feet. None of them had any real money. In fact, Roy had once told me that they were all sailing close to the wind financially. But despite this, every day, after finishing a full day's work, they had all put in a second one for nothing and bought all the materials themselves, as they knew things were hard for us as well. It was one of those moments that lifts your flagging faith in people. Sharita cried. And we all stood around until Des produced a snow-white dove from his baseball cap. Magic. And that was the night I told Sharita. She didn't say anything for a minute, and she simply looked into my eyes and said, 
that all her life she'd dreamed of meeting just one good man. Then she kissed me and said that finally she had. After suitably priming the manager, the launch of the new private lounge was suddenly upgraded to an official press launch, complete with guests from around the world. And the pièce de la résistance, the charity casino, which, even if I do say so myself, was an inspired piece of thinking. Of course, the marketing department whisked into action, calling upon all its favours, and the glittering reception was held on Friday evening. Yesterday, in fact. As befits such an occasion, protocol and pecking orders are firmly established in advance, and so only myself and the manager knew all the precise details, and, of course, security arrangements. That left one final thing for me to think about. The illusion. Talking to Mr Standish... He once told me that a true magician could carry his props in one bag or suitcase. He joked that in his heyday, what with jumping on and off of trains and often giving three performances a night in three different venues, you could only carry one thing. And of course, coincidentally, that's all it took. Just one thing. The manager took charge of the new deliveries. That was a given. Due to the nature of the arrangements, everything had been put in place prior to the deliveries weeks earlier. No one but the manager knew that the special delivery had already taken place the morning of the launch. Apart from me, that is, who he had told in strictest confidence weeks before. Of course, he'd already had me personally check all the arrangements on his behalf, Being busy as he was, sucking up to the two senior directors who had arrived to check on the progress of their new pet project. No, thank you, sir. Of course I couldn't possibly take all the credit. But it really is most kind of you to mention it. And don't worry, I have everything under control. We already had the secure facilities. They'd been in use for years and it was just a matter of increasing the amount of extra security personnel around the outside and the interior of the store. This was done by the outside contractor who supplies all our store guards. In fact, apart from the regular store team, everyone else was from hired-in agency staff. It's an absolute scandal that these agencies will hire anybody as long as they work for low wages. They even hired Sharita. Although... In actual fact, they hired somebody called Carol Brown. Mr Standish is slowly recovering now, thank goodness, and I know he'll understand. But there were just eight hours to really complete the illusion. I like to think of it all in that way, just like Harry against that clock, the icy water rushing in, threatening to engulf him. It started with the champagne. The previous day, the caterers had delivered 40 cases ready for the grand opening, and in the afternoon it was quite easy to talk the manager into opening a bottle to toast his wonderful leap forward for the store. 
It was even easier to get noticed by everyone helping myself to a second bottle and apparently drinking it all. My drunken singing and flushed face soon alerted Jim, the regular store security guard, to my interesting new condition, and after a rather undignified scuffle, I was shamefacedly taken away by the police. And it's to their thoughtfulness that I owe my current accommodation. Just an overnight stay, sir. It's just procedure. You just settle down now. There's a good boy. Apparently, there are no charges, the manager not wanting the extra publicity on top of what he's currently receiving. Family problems and work-related stress, they're calling it. It'll be dawn soon. The sun rising on a new day. Perhaps glinting off the silver masking tape around the medium-sized box marked Champagne Glasses, currently sitting on the floor of the small strong room in Roy's bank, where there's only a window like the one in this cell for it to shine through. A box which, coincidentally, is the exact same size as the diamond safe at Bendish and Sons. A box that, with the touch of a hidden spring, amazingly looks just like the diamond safe at Bendish and Sons. Even more remarkably, the box that, with a simple flourish, somehow turns itself into looking like a bin liner, marked Harry's Catering Rubbish Disposal. On a normal day, the original safe would contain some few items of jewellery and a few thousand pounds in cash. But this was no ordinary day, and to accommodate the upcoming specialist event, it now held some four million pounds worth of gemstones, ranging from diamonds to emeralds, not forgetting the half a million pounds worth of cash ready for the charity casino. And who would give a second glance to a woman dressed in a catering uniform carrying a rubbish bag on such a day? Even if the woman in question wasn't blonde, or didn't really need the thick glasses she was wearing, or wasn't as tall as the special lifts in her shoes made her. Would someone at such an event even notice such a woman? Especially if, looking confused, she went through a door marked security? Would someone make such an error? And could such a woman calmly walk into a room containing a safe and open two security doors in under one minute, securing the knowledge that the security camera in question was accidentally running a cleaning tape instead of a recording cassette? Could she pick up the dummy safe that had been sitting on top of the table? The beautiful handcrafted prop table that concealed the real safe that had dropped down on a hidden trapdoor that very morning of the security delivery? The same real but empty safe that now sprang back into its usual place once a catch was activated, locking it firmly back into place. But would it be fair to criticise the manager as he filled what he took to be the real safe with jewels and cash? It's all about craftsmanship, really. As Harry once said, what you see isn't necessarily what you see. 
and how many seconds would pass as the woman slid out the four small lead sheets that gave weight to the dummy safe. Four small but heavy lead sheets that, when reversed, fitted the newly tiled wall exactly as part of the now-extended pattern. A tribute to the craftsmanship of Bill and Steve. And while all this was happening, would she be aware that the security guard assigned to that area was dealing with a drunken employee right at that very moment? She would have to be an extraordinary woman. And what might be the possible outcome of such a chain of events? The early retirement of a disgraced employee? An elderly man receiving private nursing care in his newly renovated home? Two small firms receiving a large investment from an anonymous businessman. A local bank manager taking early retirement to look after a newly opened magic shop. Who knows? Perhaps even the disappearance of two people to sunnier climes. Anything's possible. That's what Harry said. I've opened this cell door six times now. Just a bit of fun, you understand? Remember the one immutable rule of escapology. Always escape in plain sight. You have to get away with the illusion while everyone's watching. Then it truly amazes. Time to leave soon. So I'll just sit and wait inside this locked police cell where I've spent the day and night. I can hear someone coming, probably bringing me some tea. Not to worry, though. I've made my phone call, and Roy and Sharita are picking me up soon. But don't put it down to me. Really, it's all thanks to Harry. And in his own words, thank you. You've been a wonderful audience.